0: Well, welcome. Let me extend my welcome. If you're here in the room or online, it's lovely to be here with you. As Pastor Dave mentioned, my name's Donna on the on the ministry team here, and it's an absolute privilege to be here with you this morning. If um you're following a traditional Christian calendar, you might be aware that this morning we would normally be celebrating Palm Sunday. We're not. Last week, Pastor Dave Lowell did an amazing job of helping us think about Palm Sunday. This morning, we're going to sit in chapter 14 of the book of Mark and we're going to look at the passage that we would affectionately call the Last Supper. That's not how the people in the story would have thought about it, so we're going to think about what they might have thought. Uh, Last week, as Pastor Dave was introducing the idea of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, a young foal that had never been ridden before, he talked about how the city was teeming and how it was swelled to nearly 2 million people and all the the things that were going on. And he set us up so well to realise and be thinking about what this morning we're going to be talking about. So back when he talked about Jesus coming in, I want you to keep in the back of your mind that he mentioned it was also lamb choosing So just keep that tucked away in the back of your mind for for later and we'll get there in the end, I promise. So the city had swollen to nearly 2 million people. So uh, the celebration that they'd all come in for was Passover and it's one of three festivals linked to the festival of unleavened bread and it was one of three festivals that all Jewish people that were able-bodied and able to travel were expected to attend in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, God actually specifies that they weren't to eat this meal anywhere but the city of his choosing, which was Jerusalem. So all these people from far and wide family groups have travelled into the city. Think about Jesus at 12 being left in Jerusalem at Passover, his family's travelled back. It was swarming with people, so about two million. So one commentator that I read uh, described it like this. Everybody's so closely packed that if everybody breathed In and out at the same time, the walls would have moved. It was swamped with people. Now, the city was not only full, it was teeming and seething with expectation. Something was charging the atmosphere. So the political leaders thought it was a political charge, the spiritual leaders thought it was a spiritual charge, and they were both kind of right. But nobody was expecting what was actually going to happen. So Herod and Pilate had come into the city, which in itself was unusual, and the city also was full of a much larger contingent of Roman soldiers who were there to squash any potential riots and keep peace. So along with that, so the governing authorities, the Tetrarchs and the, the governors, are expecting political revolution. The Israelites, as they celebrate and commemorate Passover, are also hoping for a revolution. They both get one, but it's not what they're expecting. Jesus takes everything that everyone's expecting and mixes it up. It's awesome. I love the fact that he does this. In the first few verses of the book of Mark, Mark tells us, that he he says something along the lines of... I'm paraphrasing here, so this is Gospel According to Donna. The paraphrase is that this is the Gospel According to Mark about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, that's what he thinks, but he doesn't actually go back and tell us what he thinks for the rest of the book. All he does is in the first eight chapters, he presents all the works and the miracles and the signs of wonders that Jesus performs... And all his words and his teaching with authority and he leaves it up to the readers to make their own conclusion there's a pivotal point in chapter 8 verse 29 where Mark records Jesus saying who do you say I am and then Mark continues on providing opportunities for people to think and ponder and answer that question They've got all the signs and all the wonders and all the works and all the words. And then they've got a whole lot more of fulfilling of prophecy. So Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was one of them. There's also the transfiguration that's recorded for us where God's voice is heard saying, this is my son. There's so many things that Mark is pointing us to to say, Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't answer the question. He wants us or the first audience, anyone that's reading or listening, to answer it for themselves. Who do you say I am? Jesus um, was aware of this. He was also aware of all the expectations people had around what the Messiah was, who the Messiah should be, and what he was going to do. But Mark shows us, that Jesus took three things that up until this point had never been joined together before, Jesus takes these three distinct things and he brings them together and fulfills them in himself. Now this was completely mind bending for those there. We've come to know it, it's ingrained, we just assume that that's always how it has been, but it isn't. For these guys that are there, it's new. So the three things are that Jesus is the Passover lamb, that Jesus is the sacrifice that deals with sin permanently, and that his death is the inauguration of a new covenant. Those three things up until this point, the Passover, the sacrificial system, and the Mosaic covenant had never before been put together. They were only known as three separate things. What's really interesting and what we need to understand is all of those things sealed by bloodshed to have a clear picture of who Jesus was to be able to answer the question who do you say I am Mark is showing that we also need to join those three things together to be able to answer it it gives them and us a new understanding of who Jesus was what he came to do what his death and his resurrection achieved but before we read the passage I want to try and help you just how revol- understand just how revolutionary this was. You ready? Okay. Have you ever got up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water or go to the toilet without putting the light on? Hmm? Have you ever signed your name without looking? Can you write your name without looking? Yeah. What about sung a song without looking at the words? Muscle memory is amazing, isn't it? Okay, take a second and picture yourself standing outside the front of your house. Open the door and go in. Can you put your bag down or your keys down or your wallet down, whatever you would normally do? Take your shoes off, go to the fridge, get a drink, sit on the couch or in your favourite chair. How familiar does that feel? Feels pretty familiar. Who thinks you could do it with your eyes closed? Who thinks you could move around your house and do some of those familiar things with your eyes closed? Yeah? It'd be pretty easy. There's some things that we do so often. I heard the night. <laughs> some things we do so often that they become ingrained. It's just something you do on automatic pilot. Okay, jump back out to the front of your house. Close the door. Now, open the door, but now, instead of everything where you're expecting it to be, just imagine that someone's got up to some mischief. Your bed's now in the bathroom. Your couch is out in the garage. Your pots and pans are on the bookshelf, but the books are in the oven. Your shampoo and conditioner are beside the toilet. Everything's the same. All your stuff is there. No one's taken anything, but it's all been rearranged. It wouldn't be what you were expecting to see, would it, if you opened your front door? That's not what you're expecting. Jesus takes everything that's familiar about this Passover that they're about to celebrate and he mixes it up. He messes with their expectations because it's the only way he can help them set aside what they're expecting the Messiah to be and do and help them see him for who he is and what he's about to do and what that will mean. He needs to challenge their expectations. Have you ever read the book, Wacky Wednesday? Yeah? These guys have just walked into Wacky Thursday. Nothing about the next 24 hours or probably even the four days, nothing is going to be what they're expecting. It's going to mess with them. Let's start with Passover and we'll, go, we'll do a really quick recap. If you wanna find it for yourselves, Exodus chapter 12 in particular, but starting chapter one, it's a really cool story and it's worth a read through. So the story starts, well, it doesn't, it starts hundreds of years before. But the story of the Passover starts in chapter 12. And we hear that there's a family of people, an Israelites or the Hebrews, who are living in Egypt. They'd actually travelled there when Joseph was um, assistant to Pharaoh during a famine. But they'd landed there and they'd planted themselves and they'd grown in number. They'd blossomed and flourished. God had blessed them. Now they were so large as a group that the Pharaoh who is now in power did something really smart. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was worried. There was enough of them that if they joined with, Israel, with Egypt's enemies, they could overthrow Egypt. So the Pharaoh subjugate, subjugates them and he puts them into slavery. He squashes them, he oppresses them, he treats them harshly. Now this has gone on for, for quite a long time and the people cry out to God, save us. This is awful, we can't do this, save us. God sends them somebody... to to be God's spokesman and to um, help them and his name is Moses so through Moses God works a series of miraculous events signs and wonders and then a series of plagues and each plague is very cleverly designed to point out how the pagan gods are useless and God is the only God his power trumps everything else now this pharaoh as every plague is presented to him says yes yes the people can go they'll be free and then he changes his mind he does a double take So this goes on and there's 10 plagues. The last plague is called the plague of the firstborn. God says, let my people go or I will pass through Egypt about midnight and every firstborn from the palace to the cattle yard will die except for the people in the houses that are covered with blood on the door frames, on the sides and the tops of the door. But the blood had to come from the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that was chosen on Palm Sunday, so this is what we're celebrating. The Passover lamb that was chosen, it had to be perfect, blemish-free, a year old. If they couldn't eat all of it, they had to get with another family next door and there was to be no wastage. Their bo- his, this lamb's bones weren't to be broken. There were so many things about this lamb, but this lamb was to be slaughtered, and eaten and his blood was to be put on the door frame anyone that was in that house the angel of the lord would pass over and the wrath of god on the judgment of the sin of the rebellion of egypt would pass over them and they would be spared that's what they're celebrating the passover so now the passover is one part but the exodus then so we call it the story of the exodus it's as the people leave Egypt God calls them out to come and worship him at Mount Sinai in the wilderness so Moses leads these people and out they travel to the mountain and God meets with them there now it's there that they're given what we call the Mosaic Covenant, because this is God's way of dealing with people, interacting. He gives them rules and regulations of how to, to have relationship with Him and relationship with each other. So there's 10 commandments and about 613 other commandments of things of ways that they were to respond and relate and have life together. So we call it the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the mediator. Now, this covenant, the way the Near East worked in this time frame, covenants were solemn agreements or oaths or contracts between parties. And the way it was sealed was that animals were killed, cut in half, and laid down two sides of a path. And the participants of the covenant needed to walk between the animals because there were blessings if you kept it and curses if you broke it. You were pretty much saying if you walked between these cut animals whose blood had been spilt, As you walked between them, you were saying, so be it to me if I break my word. But what's fascinating is that nobody but God passed through. God was saying, in the form of a smoking pot, God was saying, be it on me if these people can't keep their end of the deal. How cool is that? Only God passes through, but blood is spilt. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Now, because God knew... But there's no way these people could keep these rules, this list of do's and don'ts. There's no way anyone could. God set up a sacrificial system, the Levitical system, ways of dealing with sin. God said, so Leviticus 4 and 5 if you're interested, God said, I require blood to be spilt for sin to be covered. But I will take the substitution of an animal in replace for a human life sin equals death but in my grace and my mercy I will take an animal's blood being spilt regarding uh, not yours that's pretty merciful but this system wasn't perfect it didn't absolve the people of all their guilt it was temporary it needed to be repeated week after week month after month year after year every time there was sin more blood had to be spilt It wasn't eternal. So we come to this Passover, this last Passover, and Jesus takes these three things and he puts them together. He shows the disciples and us that in him, he is the deliverer not just from political oppression, but from slavery and bondage to sin. He's more than what they're expecting. His sinless life will satisfy all of the Mosaic laws and now he's providing a covenant of grace he will take the punishment of all sin of all time of all people on himself and in him they can be made right with God forever it was as the Christ as the Messiah he would fulfill all of these things with his blood being spilt but don't forget it was completely unexpected More so than walking in and finding all your furniture rearranged. No one before had understood that the Passover was leading to more than just physical deliverance. Or that the Mosaic Law would ever be set aside. Or that the sin sacrifices would stop being given. That was just beyond their understanding. They'd had 1,300 years of this stuff. It was in their muscle memory was in their DNA in their family history they'd come as children and said the same words and had the same sacrifices time after time after time it was totally beyond their understanding that this wouldn't continue that Jesus would fulfill it if you have your Bibles with you let's head into Mark so we're going to start in chapter 14 in verse 12 If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screens. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Okay, let's just comment on a few of those things. Mark makes a point of commenting and um, pointing us to that it's the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread and then he says very specifically when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So lamb choosing day was Sunday, so we're four days in, we're at Thursday. He didn't need to say that. Anyone in the original audience, anyone that was reading this would have known. He's saying this to point us to it. It's a very intentional, it's lamb sacrifice day. He wants us to be aware of it. The festival of unleavened bread follows on from the meal of Passover. Passover's one day, normally it sits on the 14th of Nisan, and then the festival of unleavened bread follows straight on after that, from the 15th to the 22nd, it's another week. So the people that have traveled into Jerusalem have most likely gonna be there for a couple of weeks. So Passover sits in the middle of that. So the Passover meal inaugurates the the festival. Their words have become interchangeable as time has gone along because they're so closely entwined. The unleavened bread is a big part of the Passover meal, but getting rid of the yeast and the leaven in the lead up to Passover and the festival of unleavened bread was another big deal. But Mark makes this point, it's the first day. That should have been enough to tell everyone what was happening, but he names it Lamb Sacrificing Day. The disciples may have been expecting to eat Passover with their families. That was customary. They didn't know what Jesus' plans were. They needed to ask him. Jesus couldn't move freely about the city at this point without there being a riot. So he's made plans, pre-arranged things, and then he sends two men into this city. Now, this is a bit like a spy movie. I reckon it's so cool. Just follow with me. Give me some grace you guys. Okay. Two random people go into city with two million people looking for one random dude carrying a water jar. Go on, that's not cool, is it? How are they going to find him? Some back random street, alleyway, marketplace? What do you reckon they just went to the centre of the city and said, hey, anyone carrying water? What do you reckon they did? These are such cool details. Mark doesn't actually tell us any of their names. We don't get the names of the two disciples. We don't get the man carrying water, the guy whose house it is. Even Jesus is described as the teacher. We're kind of thinking that, you know, when Mark's writing, it's probably still too dangerous to name these people. I love the idea of man carrying water. That was very unusual. And there's a whole story in that if you ever want to go and have a look. That's fascinating. But, yeah, this is all prearranged. Jesus is leaving nothing to chance. But it's all happening on his timeline the powers that be are trying to um, arrange things behind the scenes they all think somebody's in control but nobody is but jesus he's the one orchestrating every single little event he's in charge in um first corinthians 5 7 paul writes for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 19 but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect Jesus is about to take every emblem of the Passover meal they're going to celebrate and give it new meaning he's going to use the meal itself to show them and us what he's about to do let's keep reading so into verse 17 When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Again, we're not focusing on Judas. We don't have time. But a fascinating story in there. Jesus is the host. They're in the middle of the meal. There should be a familiar pattern to it. The right words sung, prayed, read. Remember, they've got 1,300 years of this being done the same way. Tradition rules here. But Jesus interrupts the meal and he says some very unexpected words. He talks of betrayal. What's more, it's his own betrayal. And it's not by some random person or fanatical religious leader, it's by one of their own. This isn't what they're expecting. Jesus is rearranging their mental furniture. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. You can almost hear them going, Wait on, Jesus, you're messing it up. The disciples are expecting Jesus to announce his kingship. They give him 24 hours and he's going to overthrow Rome. They're not expecting him to talk about betrayal, not tonight. Passover is all about celebrating God's mighty deliverance in the hope that he will do it again. Not that the Messiah, if that's who he is, would be betrayed. How do you think they must have been feeling? Don't you think they want to say, no, Jesus, that's not how it goes. You've got it wrong. You feel for them, don't you? Okay, let's head back to verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Talk about something unexpected. As the host part of Jesus' responsibilities were to lead the meal. The meal itself is called the cedar, S-E-D-E-R, and it means order. There was an order to what was said and done. Each part of the meal was highly symbolic, telling the story and representing the the age-old history. Every part of the plate that's called the cedar plate had a meaning. The bitter herbs, the salted water, the greens, it's all eaten in order to tell the story the bread on the table was the unleavened bread so there were broken bits on the table but there was a stack of three now these are called matzahs and it represents the fact that the Israelites left Egypt in a hurry they didn't have time to have yeast and have bread rise so part of the festival of unleavened bread is cleaning all the yeast which represents sin out of their houses and eating unleavened bread but these matzahs on the table this stack of three have special symbolism Now, I know that you guys will know part of what the symbolism is. I won't need to spell it out. You'll picture it as I say it. Stack of three. The host takes out the middle one. The middle one is broken. The largest piece is put away to come back later. The smallest piece is tucked back inside. And the other piece is what's broken and shared here. Does that make sense? It's the last piece that comes back later. That's when it's shared, represents the Passover lamb. This is the piece Jesus is handing out, saying, take and eat, this is my body. This is the Passover lamb he's passing out. Nothing else was to be consumed after that. It was highly significant. But he's saying, this is my body. Talk about mind-bending. They were flawed, I'm sure. What would we have done? I don't know. If we're talking about rearranging the furniture, I think you could pretty much nail the couch to the ceiling at this point. Let's head back in. We'll do 23 to 26, and then we'll talk a bit more. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover meal or the cedar always had four cups of wine and if they weren't cups, it was four intentional times that wine was drunk. Each one had a name and it symbolised something. This is the third cup that Jesus takes and gives thanks for. And they all drink from it. Matthew tells us in 26, 28 that that this is Jesus' blood poured out in sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is identifying his blood with the wine they're drinking. He's saying, Mark records him saying, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus is identifying his blood as the sacrifice for sin and the blood covenant, inauguration of a new covenant, and he's telling them to drink it. Those poor disciples. He's not actually saying that his body and the, the blood and the, um, the wine and the bread are literally his body and his blood. What he's saying is that there's a spiritual representation here of being covered by the blood, of accepting it and participating in it. We will come back to this in just a second. Let me make a couple of quick comments about verses 25 and 26. Jesus doesn't finish the meal in the expected way. So that's cup three, but what about cup four? The last cup is called the cup of the prophet of Elijah. In many traditions at this point, the front door is opened and an invitation to the prophet Elijah is made. He would be the harbinger of the coming Messiah. It's after the halal or the songs of praise have been sung and the blessing over the wine is given that the fourth cup is drunk. But Jesus doesn't do it. He says he won't drink this last cup until he can do it in the kingdom of God. They sung the last hymn, but they didn't drink the last cup. They didn't need to welcome the Messiah, and he was already there. He's showing them they didn't need to do that bit anymore. He's there with them. They didn't need to invite Elijah in. How cool is that? Okay, let's wing back. Okay, what's the deal with blood? Hope you're not too grossed out. Let's jump backwards and go back to Leviticus 17. So if you haven't got it, it'll be on the screens. We're going to read verses 10 to 12. This is God speaking I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood and I will cut them off from their people for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life therefore I say to the Israelites none of you may eat blood nor may any foreigners residing among you eat blood The blood was to make atonement for sin, covering the offences we've committed against God. In other words, those who are covered by the blood sacrifice are set free from the consequences of sin. In John 6, verses 47 to 65, Jesus says a very similar thing about eating his body and drinking his blood. And the disciples at that point, many, many turned away. This was a hard saying and they couldn't get their heads around it. Jesus is saying that his broken body and his spilt blood, where the disciples could see it as their covering for sin. A new covenant was being created with God. A new way of being made right with God. A better way of dealing with sin. A permanent way of dealing with sin. But they needed, he needed to completely rearrange their expectations of what a Messiah was coming to do to help them see it. Letting go of those expectations freed them up to welcome the Jesus they actually had. No one was expecting Jesus to die or to rise again. No one was thinking that Jesus was their Passover lamb covering them from God's wrath. No one was thinking that Jesus was going to be the only sin-required sacrifice ever, completely replacing a sacrificial system that a whole culture's been built on, or that faith in him was going to be the only way to get to God. Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, was not what they were expecting. How would they answer the question, who do you say I am? Well, we get to sneak peek because we've got the benefit of hindsight. We can look back. We know how they responded, those poor disciples. But what do we do with it today? Mark gives us two choices. First one, we can turn away and reject it. We can choose to um, ignore the offer to eat and drink. It can be too hard a saying to believe in or accept or we can accept it as truth accepting Jesus as the Messiah that he was means that we have to believe that he was fully man and fully God that he lived a sinless life and that his death and resurrection are the the only way we can have our sin dealt with and be made right with God We can become righteous in God's eyes and we can participate in this new covenant. Having relationship with God and have his gift of eternal life. But this is all his work, not ours. He's the only one that's made this covenant. We can only receive it and give him thanks and praise. If we are willing to accept Jesus' words as truth, what does it change for us? For some of us, these ideas aren't new. We've grown up with them joined together almost to the point where we have never thought that they were separate. It might not be shocking to you this morning. But maybe we have other expectations of Jesus or of what life with Jesus should look like that he wants us to let go of. Have you created a false Jesus in your mind? Have you got some expectations that are unmet but God's never said he would? Have you got a preconceived idea of how God will act how he will provide or intervene? Are you begging him to execute justice in only one way? Because that's the only way you can imagine it to happen. I don't know about you, but I got up this morning and if I'd opened my mental door, my front door, my furniture was not only rearranged, it had been through a blender. I'm reeling today, stuff's going on, life's hard what are my expectations of God in that am I willing to trust Jesus with the pieces with all the bits that look like they're in the wrong spots am I willing to believe that this story gives me hope that he can rearrange all my expectations and put it back together better than I ever imagined am I willing to do that are you willing to do that what are you praying for that you haven't yet imagined what God's going to do with it. Have you been hanging on so tightly you haven't let go yet? What's he asking of you? This story fundamentally gives us hope. It's Lamb Choosing Day. Amen. Will you choose him? If you haven't yet, don't leave. If you're online, get in touch. If you haven't yet said yes, I believe you are the Messiah the Christ who died for me and rose again to give me life today's the day but it will change what you're expecting you can't come out of that decision the same you can't put God in a box and think that you know all of who he is ever he's bigger than we can imagine better than we can imagine and he's got plans for us that are better than we can imagine I'd so highly encourage you to come back on Thursday or Friday. Participate in communion. Receive the bread and the wine. Take it with thanks. Accept his life poured out for you and receive the life he gives you in exchange. A full life, a life of joy. A life with him who promises never to leave you. That's a good deal. If you're talking about an exchange, you get the better end of the bargain here, guys. This Passover, this Easter, will you receive his life with thanks? Will you eat and drink? I'm so glad we've got the next four days to ponder on this. What's God saying to you? Where's he wanting to stir your heart? What are your expectations that he wants you to let go of? I don't know, but I'm getting older. I had a birthday yesterday. And the only thing I can tell you is life rarely looks like what you expect it will. Very rarely. And if you're ever hanging on to the, I've got it sorted, sorry to just burst that bubble, (laughs) you haven't. But we know the one who has. Let's live in hope this Easter. Let's trust the one who can move our furniture around. Yeah? You do it with me? Good. Let's pray. Can I get the worship team back up, if that's okay? Thanks, guys. Oh, Father God, we love you. You had plans from before creation. Before even you spoke light into the world, you had a plan. Jesus, we hear in Genesis that sin entered, but your plan did too. Your plan of redemption. Your plan of making us right with you again. Right through to Revelation 22. Jesus, you were at work here in this world and in us. Father, I just call out to you, not because we're suffering, but because we need you. Meet us where we need. Challenge our expectations. Don't leave us the same. And Father, if there are people in this room who don't yet know you, help them to find someone to speak to today. Father, if there are people online, help them to connect it in. Jesus, life with you is better than we could ever expect. We praise you for what you did. We praise you and we thank you because it cost you so dearly. Thank you that there's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it, but we can receive it. Jesus, open our hearts and minds to you as the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour of the world, the risen King, our Passover lamb, our sacrifice. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And we pray all these things in your mighty and precious name. Amen.